Psalm 66, 67, and 68. The more I got into Psalm 66, I realized we were getting some diversions here. So let's dive right in. Psalm 66 is to the chief musician. These, actually 65 and 66, is, uh, would be entitled uh, a restoration psalm. And I'll come to that in just a bit. But let's read the first four verses and I'll come back and explain what a restoration psalm is. Make a joyful shout to God all the earth and sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious and say to God, how awesome are your works through the greatness of your power. Your enemies shall submit themselves to you and all the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you they shall sing praises to your name, Selah. In the first four verses, we have uh, what we call future tense when it says all the earth shall, meaning it hasn't happened yet. And that's why some commentators restore, revert, refer to this as a restoration psalm. A restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. Just turning it quickly to um, the book of Acts, chapter 3. And give me a a chance to uh, expose some false teaching that's out there on a term that's called restorationalism, which carries with it in Acts 3, verse 20. Let's go back to verse 19. This is actually Peter's second sermon. If you were here on Sunday, um, I referred to this uh, that Peter and John were ordinary fellas and that God chooses the foolish things of the world uh, to confound the wise. Not many wise, not many noble are called. And I actually went to Acts chapter 4, but 3 and 4 go together because Peter and John were going to the synagogue one day, and there's that guy that was always there who was lame, could never walk, and he was asking for alms for money. And they said to him, silver and gold have we none, but that which we do have will give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. It led into Peter's second sermon, beginning in verse 12, and they're being held in account by this good deed that they had done that day. And so what I'm about to quote is Peter's second sermon. His first one, of course, would have been um, Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, it was Peter that got up and explained to everyone exactly what was happening. So as I jump into verse 19, um, this is Peter's second message. He says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before. Now he's talking about the second coming. It says of whom heaven must receive, notice, until the time of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. All right, Psalm 66 is referred to as a restitution psalm. Why? Because in verse 4, if you go back to it and look at it, it says, and they shall worship you, all the earth will worship him. Well, all the earth is not worshiping him now. So it has to be in reference to what Peter's sermon was talking about, that he has to be received back up into heaven, where? And when Stephen was killed, he 
You see, I've seen heaven open up, and there's Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. So he's in heaven, waiting for the Father's instruction, and then there's going to come a time when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and the Lord, the Father, is going to say, now. Uh, Jesus even said, no man knows the day of the hour, only my Father. And he's referring to the rapture, not the second coming. So where it gets off base here and where false doctrine enters in is this terminology that's called the doctrine of restitution of all things. And the idea is that um, everything is going to be restored. Um, Everybody is saved. And so that is where we draw the line and say that's false doctrine. That's not what the scripture teaches. So, in verse 4, and one of the reasons 65 and 66 is referred to as um, a psalm that's of restitution. It is prophetic, it is futuristic, in that this has not yet happened. But even here, I want to point out that as we make our way through the Bible in the Psalms, we're dealing with prophecy. And we can't get through the first four verses (laughs) of Psalm 66 without talking about the awesomeness of the Lord, and um, the world is going to go through some tough times. But at the end of the day, uh, the earth will worship the Lord. And uh, Zechariah says, uh, the horses will be wearing the bells. It says holiness to the Lord. And, and that's a wonderful hope and a wonderful thing to look forward to. So uh, I just penciled in Acts 3, verse 21, because that's uh, yet... Even in Peter's second sermon that he gave, he explains that Jesus has to return until, and I'll tie that in in, in a little bit deeper way when we get to Psalm 68. All right, verses 5 through 12, change of thought. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing towards the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land, and they went through the river on foot. They will rejoice in him. He rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the uh, rebellious exalt themselves, say la. I want you to look at um, verse 6. It is a reference to something the Lord did in the past. And if you read it, notice there's a comma after he turned the sea into dry land and they went through the river and Uh, run through the river on foot. What we actually have in view here is two very different events. And uh, one of them is a reference, of course, to Moses and um, the crossing of the Red Sea. Well, I came into the back room (coughs) room tonight, and this this was sitting on the the paper, on uh, the desk back there, and the title is The Science of the Red Sea Miracle. On the 12th of December, um, Riddle Scott is going to come out with his version of what Sessa B. DeMills did back in the 50s with the Ten Commandments. Only he has his own version. Uh, T.A. McMahon happened to call me today, and we got chit-chat, and he says, pray for me, i got to go watch this movie in the next couple of days. And so he'll be writing about it. Well, I, had, I really hadn't been following it. I mean, I saw the trailers just like you folks did on it, and I really had no opinion one way of it or another. But I just read the subtitle underneath this, and I read the article during part of worship. I'm not going to read the whole article, but 
the gist of what really happened, according to uh, Riddle Scott here, is uh, the new movie Exodus, God and Kings, the Red Sea recedes as a result of a tsunami caused by an earthquake. In reality, coastal waters uh, draw back 10 to 20 minutes before a tsunami. Well, if that's what this is going to be based on, and that's the explanation, then I have a problem with that. I read the article, and that's exactly where it appears to be. And I'm sure uh, TA is going to have a field, field day, you know, exposing this for what it is. Why don't we go back and actually see uh, what the Word of God has to say about it? And we need to go back to um, the book of Exodus, chapter 14, and let's get the biblical account. The Bible's always current, it's always relevant, it's always applicable to our lives. I believe that the enemy always has counterfeits for the real thing. That's why we call the Antichrist the Antichrist. It's not that he's against, it's, it's a counterfeit of, is a better translation. So basically what the movie, from a, from a distance without seeing it, is going to attempt to erase the supernatural with a natural occurring event that we would see today. In Exodus chapter 14, we have, of course, Sesame Mills nails it, but in verse 21, it says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. Now, I'm going to make a distinction here because one of the things in verse 6 is talking about the Red Sea. But then it talks about a river and dry land. Now, a sea is a sea, and a river is a river. And we have two of them walking over on dry land. And I think it's there by evidence of design by the Holy Spirit. One is going to refer to baptism, this one here. And I'll go to the New Testament and show you that this event is a picture of water baptism. But then I'm going to take you to the river because there was a time when the Jordan River was dried up. And that's going to refer to something uh, also that pertains personally to you and I. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So Moses, verse 21, stretched out his hand. Over the sea, the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, made the sea into dry land. And I've got to emphasize the dry land part here. Not muddy land, dry land. And the water was divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. The waters pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea. The Egyptians pursued and went after them. All of Pharaoh's horsemen and chariots and horsemen. Now you can Google this. You can, you can go to the depths of the Red Sea, and they have chariot wheels. Just Google in chariot wheels and and Red Sea, and you'll be amazed on what you'll find. They're still there, some of them. Came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and clouds, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. He took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians fled into that. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Now let me just comment quickly. Some will say, well, the sea is really a sea of reeds is what's referenced to, and the water really in that area is just a foot and a half to two feet deep. 
And that's really what happened. And what I have a problem with is guys drowning in a foot and a half of water. <laughs> I have a big problem with that. If you can kick your head up that high, you're okay. No, there's a whole lot more going on here supernaturally. The Lord called the, the wheels to fall off. The Lord held back the walls of water. It goes on to say the waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. Very detailed. Uh, one or two of them didn't swim out and make it out that way. They were all taken out. Why? Because that was God's judgment upon them. But more importantly, it's a picture of death that's happening there. Death to what? They were escaping from Egypt, which is always a picture and a type of the world. And they had to leave the world, go through the water to begin this walk of faith. It's absolutely essential that you, they died in there and nothing remained. Otherwise, it's going to destroy the picture that I'm going to take you to in the New Testament. All right? So the children of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, and so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. There's the Old Testament picture. Please go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in the New Testament, and let's look at the New Testament teaching. When a person comes to Christ... Sometimes we use Christianese and terminology such as getting rooted and grounded in the faith. We take that from the parable of the sower. And then we talk about, well, coming out of the world and uh, dying to the old life. I remember one Texan preacher having this great comment about talking to somebody that was uh, saved but still not out of the world. And the terminology was as a as a cowboy, being a preacher, he says, well, I got the horse in the corral, but I don't have a saddle on him yet. <laughs> Meaning what? Okay, he's in the kingdom, but he's not rideable, he's not broken yet. The Lord is not the Lord of his life. When a person comes out of the world and asks on the day of Pentecost, what should we do, Peter, that we've sinned against the Lord? He said, repent, believe, and be baptized. And the Bible says that day, 3,000 people were baptized. Now, there were more than 3,000 people there, but only 3,000 believed and were baptized. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, this idea of under the cloud, this is the Lord um, going with them, guiding them day and night a cloud to protect them from the sun by day and a, and a fire by night that overshadowed them these 40 years in the wilderness. So Paul's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant about what's going on here. Um, of our fathers were under the cloud and they passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and they ate the same spiritual food. A lot of spiritual applications for you and I. The main one here is the picture of them leaving Egypt, leaving the world. 
And the idea that something has to die there completely and totally, not one of them, and that's the point that's made in, in Exodus, not one of them made it up. You have to die to the old man. And that's uh, what he goes on to talk about in Romans chapter 6, that we're all baptized. And the old man was put away. Well, the old man is Egypt. And what a great picture. You got the Egyptians dying in the Red Sea. And that's what happens at baptism. You're saying, when you get baptized, goodbye, old world, okay? It's going down, it's being buried, and I'm coming up this new person that's born again. I'm outwardly trying to show you what God is doing inwardly inside of me. I came out of the world, I went through the water, was baptized, I came out, and now that's a picture, and it's really one of the uh, two, what some people like to call sacraments, some people don't like the terminology, but it's one of the two things the Lord asks us to do as believers, and that is uh, remember him in communion and be baptized as a believer. All right, uh, let's go quickly back to uh, 66. And I think if you're just reading through this rather quickly, you kind of just put the two together and not seeing the difference between sea and river. It stopped me dead in my tracks today. And I realized that it's going to take me longer to get through chapter 66 than I thought. Because a second after the comma... A sea is not a river, and a river is not a sea. And the idea is, is it's on dry land, and it's on foot. Well, turn with me to Joshua now, chapter 3. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years. The Lord is upset with Moses for disobeying him and getting angry with the people. It says, Moses, you can't take my people into the promised land, but I'm going to let Joshua do it. Now, there's a whole Bible study there because in the Gospel of John, verse uh, verse 17, it says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So if crossing the Jordan after the 40 years in the wilderness meant that God has kept his promise, what was the promise? I'm going to take you to a land of milk and honey. That's the promise. And all of a sudden, there they are, getting ready to cross over Jordan into the promises of God. Moses couldn't go, and by design, because you can't enter into the promises of God by keeping the law. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Either you keep it perfect, or if you break, Paul says, if you break one of them, you're guilty of all of them. So you can't enter the promises of God by keeping the law. Therefore, Moses couldn't lead them in. He's a, he's a picture again. Joshua, on the other hand, if you change his name around, we understand it as what? Jesus, Yeshua. So here, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Joshua is Jewish. Uh, Jewish. Of course he's Jewish. <laughs> so is Jesus for that matter. <laughs> Joshua is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're in Joshua chapter 3, let's pick it up in verse, let's see, verse 13. They're at the base of the Jordan River. It says, It came to pass, as soon as the sole of the, the feet of the priest who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, uh, sh- shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan will be cut off. And the waters shall come down, not come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. And so it was when the people set out from the camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. 
And all those who bore the ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priest who bore the ark dipped there, dipped in the edge of the water from for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of the harvest, so it's rainy season, that the waters came down from upstream. They stood still and rose in a very rose uh, very far away at Adam, the city is besides Zeratan. So the waters that went down to the Sea of Arabia, or the, the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jordan. And then the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm. Now notice this, it's emphasized, and I wanted to emphasize it, on what kind of land? Dry. You know, it takes a while for it to not be muddy, okay? So what I want you to see is a supernatural. Um, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed over completely and then things returned to normal. Now I want you to see something that's different here. What was different between the Red Sea and this one is Moses just goes out and it happens. And it was, there was no faith required on anybody's part. It just happened. This is different. Uh, he doesn't go out there and, and the, the waters part. Another term that we use is a step of faith. And these priests were given instructions from Joshua to the priesthood. You got to walk on it first, and then it's going to stop. Some of them were thinking, are you kidding me? (laughs) What are you talking about? But what I want you to see is that faith is, a step of faith is required for this to happen. Just as crossing the Red Sea was a picture of baptism, I believe that the Bible teaches there's two baptisms. There's a baptism of water, but there's also the promises of God that he's promised to us that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we have a picture of here. It requires faith. It is a second dividing of going through the water. And now I would like you to turn to John chapter 7 in the New Testament and follow this through. John chapter 7 is a promise. John 7, verse 37. Verse 37 is the last day of the Feast of Sukkot, or Tabernacle. It was an eight-day festival. What it commemorated, and what they were never to forget, is how God supernaturally kept them for 40 years. And so what they would do is they would build their booths, and they'd put little palm branches on it, and they'd leave little cracks so they could see the stars at night. All of that was to remind them that God protected them and fed them manna for 40 years. And 1 Corinthians 10, if we would have read a little bit farther, watered them also, two million strong, for 40 years. So the feast of Sukkot was in memory, done annually. And now what we have here is on the last day. We read, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, now if anybody's thirsty, let him come and drink. For he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But then he clarifies, John is now writing after the fact that the Holy Spirit has been sent. So John has the hindsight to comment upon what Jesus was talking about in verse 39 where he says, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Moses couldn't bring the Holy Spirit. 
Joshua had to be the one to take them through the water, and it had to be a step of faith. And what did they enter into when they crossed the Jordan? The promised land. What did Jesus promise the church? Well, he tells them that he's not going to leave them as orphans. If you just flip over to John chapter 14, let's pick it up. Uh, Verse 14, if anybody asks anything in my name, I will do it. Verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, and he will abide with you forever. Now, that's a promise. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you. Who is he speaking to at this time? The disciples. Did they believe on him as a Messiah? Absolutely. But he dwells with you, and notice, and he will be in you. So he's with them, and this is the way it is. Uh, I like to liken it to um, the Lord working in a person's life that you're praying for right now. I believe the Holy Spirit is with them, not necessarily in them. It's one thing to have the hound of heaven on your heels. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? I could identify. Before I got saved, he was on my heels. He was with me, he was after me, but he wasn't in me. These are two different things. So they weren't in the promised land. Here's the picture. Joshua, by crossing the waters a second time, here it is in Psalm 66, emphasis on dry land on both cases. And I think both are essential for for living the Christian life because I can't pull it off. You can't pull it off. Um, uh, don't we read, Why can we, what, we can't glory in anything. What do you have that you haven't received? Well, the Lord gave me my IQ of 150. Well, notice you said the Lord gave you the IQ of 150. How can you take credit for that? Or you might have a gift in this area or a gift in that area. Well, we'll get into that when we get into Psalm 68 because that's, there's prophecies that go right to the book of Ephesians that talk about that. All right, I got to be careful here, and let's get back, and let's just see if we can just connect this much together in verse 6. What we have here, come and see the awesome works of God towards the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land, they went through the river on foot, and they will rejoice for him. He rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nation, do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. Both were past tense when these were being written but they were pictures of a New Testament reality of the Christian life in water baptism, but also the baptism of the Spirit. All right, let's pick it up in verse 12. You have caused men to ride over, uh, verse 8, O bless God, all, all you his people, and make the voice of his praises to be heard, who keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. For you, O God, have proved us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You even brought us into the net. You even laid affliction on our backs. You have caused men to ride over our heads. And we went through fire and we went through water. I wonder if that's where James Taylor got fire and rain, maybe. But you brought us out to a rich fulfillment. 8 through 12 talks about the refining process, and gang, this is so important. And I think the, the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you understand it, the more you're prone to accept it, and realizing that this terminology that we call sanctification, 
is a work in progress. You'll never become perfect, but you will be changed and chipped away at and refined. How? Like silver is refined, going through the fire. And so the purpose of it is that, but you will be brought out to rich fulfillment. You are going to go through persecution. You are going to go through trials. You are going to go through difficult days. And you need to know that Jesus said, if they've done this to me, they're going to do it to you. There's going to be situations that you find yourself in that you don't want to be there. Jesus didn't want the Garden of Gethsemane. But he said, not my will be done, but my Father's will. Paul didn't want the thorn in the flesh. But after praying about it for three times, the Lord says, it's staying. He says, okay. That was it. I mean, it was that simple. All he had to hear was the Lord say, I'm not taking it away. And then he was okay with it. Even took a step farther, he says, all right, I'll glory in it. If you're giving this to me, then there's a reason and a purpose for it. And this is a good one because this trips up people that aren't rooted and grounded in the faith when they go through their first trial. That's what the parable of the sower teaches. In time of temptation, they fell away. Why? Well, they didn't understand what we're reading right here. Let's turn in the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 1. Could go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 says every son that is a son of the father is going to be disciplined. He says, your parents, you, you got this figured out. You, you've raised kids. Since when do you let your kids get away with, with whatever they want to? You don't. You discipline them. He goes on to say, if you're not disciplined, then you're not even part of the family. First Peter 1, verse 6, in talking about this process, oh, let's pick it up in verse uh, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has gotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Hallelujah, my name's written in the book of life. I'm going to heaven. Now, though, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom not having seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy, inexpressible, full of glory, even receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Trials are a necessity. Um, Being purged is a necessity. Go back to um, Psalm 66. And what is the, the psalmist saying? Well, you have refined us as silver is refined. You have caused men to ride over our heads. That can be anything from people taking advantage of you or bats stabbing you or whatever. And through it all, we went through fire and we went through rain. But, and here it is, you brought us out to a rich fulfillment. It was all part of the refining process. So it helps us. Nobody likes a trial. And um, yet through it, and you understand what the scriptures teach on it, there's a greater acceptance of it. You know, you look at Paul's thorn in the side. You look at the writer of the Hebrews is saying absolute necessity if you're a son to be chastised. And if you don't, 
And uh, if, you don't, if you're not chastised, you're not even in the family. All right, let's finish out the chapter, 13 through 19. I will go into your house with burnt offerings, and I will pay to you my vows, which my lips have uttered. And my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals with the sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls and goats, Selah. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. I'll come back to that. But certainly God has heard me, and he has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from me. Let's go back to verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 in the New Testament. People can be easily deceived. Others, not so easily deceived. Some people are easy to see through, some more hard. But one person you can never deceive or fool is the Lord himself. He knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows what you're going to do before you do it. Because God is omniscient, there isn't anything he doesn't know. And all your days, according to the Psalms, were written in his book even before the foundation of this world was laid. No surprises with God. So now he's saying if you're regarding iniquity, let's just say a continual denial of sin, and you decide that you're going to explain it away rather than repent of it. Let's just look at Matthew 5 to give clarification to the statement that I just said. Verse 20. I say unto you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means go to heaven. Wow, that blew their minds. You have heard that it was said to you of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. Uh, Let me quick say, in the commandments, thou shalt not kill, is better translated, thou shalt not murder. And there's a difference between murder and killing. Is everybody with me on that? Murder is premeditated. That's really clarified in the Levitical laws. That everyday circumstances, you know, I was out in the woods cutting with my axe, the axe handle fell off, and it killed the guy. Well, that's not murder because it's not premeditated. That was an accident. Well, he still killed him, and the Bible says, thou shalt not kill. No. I'll just leave that there. Verse 22, Jesus says, But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of counsel, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go on your way first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hands you over to the officer and you're thrown into prison, assuredly I say to you, you will by no means uh, get out until you have paid the last penny. If you regard iniquity in your heart, yeah, I know I'm supposed to forgive him, but I'm not going to. You're regarding iniquity in your heart. And uh, he says, don't waste your time going to church. First Corinthians 11, which we read last Sunday because it was communion, 
says, let a man examine himself. Well, what does that mean? Well, he, he wants you to get it right in your heart before you come up and take communion. Because if not, you're just playing a game and God's not listening to you. You might be going through with the, the motions. But the Lord is saying, I want you to deal. I want you to judge yourself. As it says, if we would judge ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. So that's a whole message again within itself. And I got, <laughs> I need to get back to Psalm 66. The last verse of Psalm 66 ends on a high note. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. We don't pray enough. Let's just leave it at that. We don't pray enough. When we first started it, one of the things that Chuck always said, prioritize. When you go out and you, you, you plant a new work, he says, here's what's most important. Get your men, get them praying, and then keep praying. Don't ever stop doing it. So when it comes to a, like a men's prayer meeting, that's something I feel really strongly about. Really, it's a highlight of the week. I, I've, you've heard me say that a hundred times, but I mean it. It is a rich time of fellowship, and uh, some of the guys sitting around our men's prayer table in the fellowship hall are more qualified than a lot of people behind a lot of pulpits in our nation today. And I sincerely mean what I just said. More than qualified and what they know in the depth of their maturity and their walks with the Lord. And without prayer, you know, we have not because we ask not. The bad part about it is we live in a crazy world that has become so filled with technology, let's just put it that way. And you can have anything you want and have any answer you want at a a moment's notice. (laughs) Siri, what's the NFL standings? I want to know right now, and she'll tell you right now (laughs) exactly what they are. And you can have them just like that. And with the Lord, his answers are yes, no, and wait. Yes is good. No, it's not as good. Wait is terrible because we hate waiting. We want now. But the thing is that we have a God that wants us to talk to him. And he wants us to approach him because he wants fellowship with you. And he wants to talk about it. And that is what prayer is all about. We're told to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? It's Isaiah 26, 3, where it says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts in thee. It doesn't mean you're going around always moving your mouth praying. No, it's just that your mind is always in that state of mind of keeping your mind on the Lord. And it doesn't mean you don't zone out and be responsible with your family and your job. Of course not. It's just that state of being where you're You can shoot up a prayer because you're just walking with the Lord. Psalm 67. To the chief musician on a stringed instrument, a psalm. So Psalm 67 is only seven verses long. Uh, Interesting. Number seven is a number not of perfection but of completion. Seven days in a week. Seven notes on a scale. Then it repeats. And seven colors and a rainbow. Number of completion. The book of Revelation is a complete book. Seven letters, the seven churches, three sets of plagues set up with seven in each of the three sets, and it goes on and on and on. Psalm 67 is a prophetic psalm. It looks beyond this age to the kingdom age. During the millennial kingdom, you will see a converted world. 
a world in which God shall bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear him. The curse will be removed. We'll be able to sing songs of praise. Even I'll be able to sing along with the hallelujah chorus and not be out of tune. Then this is McGee's comment, on it, and I like it, and I'm going to apply it here. He says, now there's a difference between interpretation and application of Scripture. I'm afraid that in wanting um, to be an intellectual, many theologians and Bible teachers have forgotten one of the simplest rules for understanding the Scriptures. And the simple rule is this. All Scripture is for us, but not all Scripture is to us. And I want to give you an example of that. I want to repeat it. All Scripture is for us, but not all Scripture is to us. And as we look at this psalm, let's read it, and then I'm going to give you a New Testament example of what McGee is referring to. God be merciful to me and bless us, and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that you may be known on earth your salvation among all nations. Let the people praise you, O God, and let the people praise you. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Notice, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth, Selah. This is not the great white throne judgment. It is not the judgment seat of Christ. I'll tell you where it is in a second. Let's finish it. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And then the earth shall yield her increase, and God, our own God, shall bless us and shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Let's go back to verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the nations. You shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, and I'll show you what he has in view, because he's talking about judging the nations over all the earth. What we have in view here is the millennial reign. And in verse 31, first of all, if you go to chapter 26 and read verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples. So 24 and 25, we call the Olivet Discourse, where it starts with the question, Lord, when are you going to come back? That's the question. So 24 and 25 are together. And now, when he gets to verse 31, he's actually coming back. He's already come back, in my opinion, in verses 36 through 44, a picture of the rapture of the church. When we get to verse 31, we, let's just read it. And when McGee said, all scripture is for us, but not all scripture is to us, well, this scripture is for us, but it's not to us or about us. And I'll clarify that. This is often taken out of context. The context of the scripture, and again, here's another rule in Bible study and interpretation of the Bible, and that is you have to study it in context. So it's used often in missionary organizations, but let's put it in context here. What is the context? Verse 31, when Jesus comes again, in his glory and his holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All nations will be gathered before him, all right? We're already been taken in the rapture. Or like mom and dad, they're already with the Lord. So that does not pertain to mom or dad or us here tonight. 
But it does pertain to all those who are left alive at the end of the great tribulation period. And they're both alive. So imagine people who have taken the mark of the beast, they're alive. Some of them are still alive. Imagine some Christians who have not, and they've made it to the end of the tribulation, and the Bible says men will be rare on the earth in those days, but they'll still be there. And the nations will still be there. All right, so getting back to McGee, all scripture is for us, but not all is to us. This is not to us. This is to those who are alive at the second coming of Christ at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Everybody with me? Okay. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and the holy angels with him, he will sit on his throne of glory. All the nations of the earth will be gathered. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep and the goats. Those who took the mark of the beast on one side and treated and were after to destroy Israel and then those that became believers because of the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, in my opinion, and the witnessing of the 144,000. Great revival. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry. You gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was stranger. You took me in. I was naked. You clothed me. I was sick. You visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and take you in and naked and clothe you? And when did you see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these my brethren. Who are my brethren? Well, the nation of Israel. Those Jews that are in flight from the Antichrist. You did it to me. But then he'll say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation 14 um, tells of three angels. One preaches the everlasting gospel to the entire world. That fulfills Matthew 24, verse 15, where it says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached into all the world and then the end will come. Well, that's when it happens. An angel does it. Why? Well, because the two witnesses are dead, 144,000 have been taken out, but God always has a witness. So he uses an angel. Talk more about that on Sunday. But then another angel says, Babylon, Babylon has fallen. And another angel comes and says, don't take the mark of the beast. Anybody who takes the mark of the beast is going to be tormented with fire, just like we're reading right here, prepared for the devil and his angels. So that's who we have in view. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. I was naked and you did not clothe me. In prison you did not visit me. And they will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and did not minister to you? And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, as you did it not unto the least of these, you did it not unto me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment and the righteous into everlasting life. Remember, we started our study talking about restitutionalism, the restoration of all things, and everybody gets saved? No, everybody doesn't get saved. Exactly 1,335 days after the abomination of desolation in the middle of the book of Revelation, this event takes place. Because it says, if you're taking notes and you want to write this down later, write down 
Daniel chapter 12, and just read the last six verses of Daniel 12. Because Daniel said, how long, Lord? And he says, from the time of the desolation until he comes again, it'll be 1,290 days. And then he comes back. And then he says, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335th day. 1,335 minus 1,290 is a 45-day period of time. Evidently, it takes this judgment of the Gentiles takes 45 days. And it says, you're blessed if you make it to the 1,335th. Are you guys tracking with me on who gets to go into the kingdom? They're the blessed ones. That's why they're called blessed. But if they don't, well, then they didn't make it. They were the goats that were, were cast out. Guys, it fits together like a glove. I mean, when you study it, it just fits together so perfectly, so precisely, and it gives me just that more assurance. God's got everything under control, like clockwork. By the way, that clock for Israel's looks like it's going to start ticking pretty soon, as far as I can tell. That's all the time I got left. We better get back to 68, because that's my, that's my text for Sunday, and I got to at least get up to part of it here. Psalm 68, I'm going to read up to verse... 18. What we have here is a reference to Numbers 10. Each day when Israel was ready to begin their wilderness march, Moses would say, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. What a wonderful way to begin a day's march. Psalm 68, verse 1. Let God rise, let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly and sing to God and sing praises to his name. Exalt him who rides on the clouds. What beautiful poetry. By his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless, A defender of widows is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. But the rebellious dwell dwell in a dry land. O God, when you went out before you people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth shook, the heavens also drooped rain, dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You, O God, sent a plentiful rain, whereby you confirmed your inheritance. When it was weary, your congregation dwelt in it. You, O God, provide from your goodness for the poor. And the Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings of armies flee, they flee. And she who remains at home divides the spoil. Though you lay down among the sheepfolds, yet you will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scatters kings in it, it is white as snow as salmon. A mountain of God is a mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountains of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is a mountain of God which desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. Now, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. Some of you have 
the King James Version of the Bible, and it says the chariots of God are 20,000 and thousands of angels. And this is going to be where we're getting sidetracked on Sunday because what is about next is prophetic. And it says, you have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. Now, we're at our time, and I'm going to leave you with a teaser. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 in the New Testament, because in the middle of this glorious psalm, 68, we clearly have word for word, and even in my Bible, I have what's called the Prophecy Bible, and it's highlighted in red, and I have a J next to it, which means it's referring to something future about Jesus. And there's no red anywhere else in, in the last couple chapters, and nor until I get to 69. But this is in red, and if you go to Ephesians 4, it says he led captivity captive, and he received gifts for men. In Ephesians 4, we read in verse 8, and we'll, again, I'm, I'm leaving you with this tonight because this is where we're going to pick it up on Sunday. Psalm 68, verse 18, is now going to be fulfilled, but here in Isaiah, in um, Psalm 68, it is prophetic and yet future. But as Paul talks about it here, he's speaking to it in past tense. It's already happened. So let's read it. Ephesians 4, verse 8, Therefore he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. What does your cross-reference say in your Bible? Psalm 68, verse 18. Now there's more clarification, though, because then the psalm goes back into praising the Lord. And this is something that you got to be watchful for when you're studying the scriptures. So often the Lord would say, well, this had to happen because the scriptures said, and then you have this obscure psalm quoted. Well, here's an example of that. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? Uh, We don't learn that in Psalm 68. We do in the New Testament. But he who descended also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Let's just stop there. Jesus says, it's expedient that I go back to the Father. Well, why is it expedient? He says, well, if I don't go back to the Father, then I can't send the Spirit back. And so he invested himself into 12 disciples for three years, day and night, on the job training. And now, with the Holy Spirit being sent, what is he going to do? Well, let's read verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles. These are the gifts that are talked about in and, and Psalm 68. And he gave gifts to men. Well, what kind of gifts? Well, here they're mentioned. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? That we should no longer be children that are tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and by the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. I couldn't hold this paper up to you tonight and tell you that this movie is off the wall unless I knew the word of God. Somebody want to say amen? 
You wouldn't know it. You'd say, well, maybe that's the way it happened. Well, you know your Bible, you know what you say? That's not the way it happened. This is, this is heresy. This is a supernatural work of God that goes so deep that it's actually talking about baptism of water and tied in with Psalm 68 that talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And now you have this one verse in 68 that explains that the reason the Lord had to go back to heaven is so he could send back the Holy Spirit. He gave gifts to men for the work of ministry. Every gift of the Holy Spirit, every single one of them except the gift of tongues, has been given to you as a believer so that you can build up somebody else, except one exception, the gift of tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, 4 says that one is for self-edification. And they got that one all screwed up in the church today. And that's misused. All right. Um, But so that we won't be fooled by false doctrine. That's why he wants us to know the word so well. But do it in love. And I like this verse 15, but speak the truth in love. Uh, Don't come off, uh, I got my act together and I know more than you do, blah, 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 blah. No, you speak the truth in love that you may grow up in all things unto him who is the head Christ, who from the whole body joined and knit together by every joint supplies according to the effectual working by which every part does its share. So that means you're important, you have a part in exercising your gift, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this evening. We did not take it for granted. And we see the wonderful way that your spirit has woven and intertwined, Lord, your scriptures with the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Lord, it just seems the deeper we go, the deeper it gets. And we just stand in awe and wonder, Lord, with this book that you've given to us to sustain us. In the same way that they had manna to sustain them on their walk on earth, so you've given us the bread of life, which you said is this book, to be eaten daily. So we thank you for it, and pray you go before us now the rest of this night. In Jesus' name, amen.